Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Has American Christianity Failed, a book by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Um, we're going to begin on page 92, right at the very bottom, and we've been discussing justification. Before we get back into our discussion, let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, as we've been talking about justification, we've slowed all the way down, and we've really been careful to define our terms, talking about such concepts as justification and imputation. If those very, very foundational topics are of interest to you, check out our, the recording of our previous class where we go into that in some depth and detail. Now, as we look at um, page 92, of course, Wolfmiller has just introduced us to this biblical idea of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Luther calls this the great exchange. Here's the quotation from St. Paul. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Okay, so the Father makes the Son to be sin, Obviously, the Son himself knew no sin, so he is innocent, he's sinless, but our sins are laid on him. All right? So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So, our sin is laid on Jesus, his righteousness is laid upon us. Our sin is imputed to him, his righteousness is imputed to us. Um, he who knew no sin becomes a sinner that we might become the righteousness of God, even in terms of ontology and final picture, final glance. So Martin Luther calls this the great exchange, and this is maybe one of the easiest, simplest ways to understand justification, right from the scriptures. All right. Now, as we drop down to the bottom of 92, where we left off that last sentence, I'll simply pick up there. In this chapter, Wolfmuller writes, we will consider justification, the preaching of the gospel, and the profound benefits the Lord has for us in this preaching. All right, so we have justification, and then we have the application of justification, which happens in preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So what's the connection here? Well, in the foundational book of the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, Augsburg Confession, or Augustana as we sometimes call it, Article 4 is about justification, how we are justified, how we stand before God now and in, in the hour of judgment, righteous in his sight, by grace, okay, that excludes all of our merit, through faith, that excludes all of our works. Um, on a, apart from works, it can sometimes be explicitly added to the formula, on account of Christ. So, we are justified by grace, through faith, apart from works, on account of Christ. So far, so good? Okay, now that's Article 4. Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession says, so that we may obtain this faith. God instituted the preaching office. So preaching is the delivery system of God's justification, that objective activity that God did in Christ Jesus on the cross is delivered with the for you, the plural for you, or the singular for you, is delivered that way through preaching. Again, faith that justifies us comes by hearing. 
So the Book of Concord lays these two biblical teachings right next to each other, and they're foundational for understanding the Christian faith and where, where Rome has departed with kind of all of its nonsense and different ways of obtaining grace and different ways of obtaining faith. And then again, you can't have too much faith because then that's certainty in God's promises. We can't have that. Um, you know, so Roman Catholicism gets skewed in all of its complexity and in this whole system. What the scriptures teach is beautiful, clean, and simple. God justifies us in Christ Jesus, puts our sin on him, puts his righteousness on us, declares this to us via the word, and creates faith within us. So that's the nature of this chapter, justification and the delivery system, the word. And we can see how those things trace all the way back to the book of Concord, all the way back to the scriptures themselves. All right, so basic stuff on the one hand. On the other hand, of such extreme importance, we can't simply dismiss it for being simple. All right, so that leaves us at the top of page 93. Wolfmuller writes, A lot of American Christianity's older preaching of the gospel was a call to return to the cross. At the, here's now quoting, At the foot of the cross I lay my burdens down. The old rugged cross. Um, and you kind of, you might have some experience with this piety. Um, even in a sense, although I think this hymn in the, in the language of the verses itself, um, re is redeeming, redeems the hymn for us. But even just at the title, Go to Dark Gethsemane. Well, in what sense can I go to Dark Gethsemane? In what sense can I go to the cross? In what sense can I um, claim the old rugged cross. Uh, at best, it's kind of a metaphor, right? Um, because you can't, I mean, what does that mean? Get on a plane and actually fly to the Middle East and, you know, um, even then you couldn't find the, the cross, could you? I mean, you'd probably find some disputed sites. But, okay, let's, let's just then carry on with, with Wolfmuller's critique here. There are two problems with this. First, we can't get to the cross. There is a church built over the traditional place of the crucifixion. And if you crawl under the altar, you can reach through a pane of glass and touch the hole where the cross was planted. But there is no more wood, no cross. There is nothing there. We cannot go back in time to that dark Friday afternoon. Okay, that's the first critique. All right. Second, even if we could go back in time to the cross, it would do us no good. Now, I think we can skip the next paragraph, just I commend it to you, of course, but for the sake of our moving through the chapter. Wolfmuller says, consider this, plenty of people were there on Good Friday, walking by, mocking Jesus, marveling at the spectacle. This did not forgive their sins. Imagine the Roman soldiers who had crucifixion duty that day. They would be covered with the blood of Jesus. Did this blood benefit them? Were they saved because they touched the blood of Jesus? No. Jesus on the cross atones for our sins, propitiating the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus wins, he's got emphasis on that word wins, Jesus wins the forgiveness of our sins, but Jesus does not deliver, emphasis put on that word, Jesus does not deliver forgiveness to us from the cross. Jesus has another way to get his forgiveness to us. It is delivered in the word. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What converted the thief on the cross? Probably the word of Jesus. Yeah. And the word of Jesus in connection with the conduct of Jesus, no doubt about it. We don't know anything about this man either, and of course, and we want to... But who's to say that this man didn't grow up in the synagogue learning the scriptures and then realize in that moment that Christ was fulfilling the word, the word of the scriptures? That's an argument from silence. But be that as it may, the point is, it's always the word that converts. You know, no one's walking along down the street and just suddenly goes, you know, I think I believe in this guy named Jesus Christ. I wonder who that is. Oh, just came to me. Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of the Virgin Mary and crucified for us men, for our salvation, rose from the grave on the... Th no, nobody just walks down the street and has this manifest into their minds. Um, this always comes to us via the word. Okay, so that's the that's the point. 
um, that Jesus wins forgiveness on the cross, but doesn't deliver forgiveness from the cross, unless you want to say in his speech, um, but rather in the word. And so here what we're doing is we're taking the idea of justification, our right standing before God. We're saying how Christ did this for us. Now the delivery system for this, though, is in the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. It is the Holy Spirit who uses the word to convince and convict our hearts so that then um, we may um, say that Jesus is Lord. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. All right, so far so good. Okay. So again, I don't, you know, I don't think we need to pick too hard, especially on, on the hymn, um, Go to Gar Dark Gethsemane. A lot of this is just, un okay, understand it as metaphor, that kind of thing. Um, but what you can notice in American Christianity is when everything becomes metaphor, then there's a sudden distinct lack of reality. So everything is in my mind, everything is in my heart, everything is imagination, metaphor, nebulous. I can't ever come to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins except sort of nebulously in my heart. The whole, the whole spirituality becomes largely a spirituality of imagination. And this is where, you know, I, I kind of teasingly poke fun when, when evangelicals say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Yes, but not in such a way that he's, unmistakable from an imaginary friend, right? Um, our relationship with Jesus becomes quite concrete. Remember what Jesus says to his apostles. He says to his apostles, whoever hears you, hears me. So here I am listening to the apostles, listening to preachers in the line of the apostles preaching faithfully, and I'm actually hearing not those sinful men per se, but rather Christ, because to hear them is to hear Christ. So this is my relationship with Christ. Where his word is, there he's speaking to me. This is my relationship to Christ. I come to him at his altar and he says, my body and my blood given and shed for you for your forgiveness. And I, I eat and I drink in that salvation. That's my relationship with Jesus. I pray the prayer he has taught me and I reflect on what he's done for me and the revelation of that in his word. And this is my relationship with Jesus. So it's quite different than this kind of idea of, you know, it used to be way, way back in the day. It used to be this idea that you had like an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Remember this? I want you to, yeah, kind of, kind of bad theology all the way around on that one. There's not much redeemable. But what, what has kind of become modern and in vogue is sort of this idea that, well, it's just Jesus sitting on your shoulder. He's your co-pilot. He's your life, your life coach. He's your buddy. He's your encourager. Um, that really, really changes the shape of one's Christianity, of one's theology. And, and what ultimately ends up happening is, well, Christ is no longer Christ. And it's impossible to distinguish him from an imaginary friend. I mean, isn't it convenient where Jesus, who's sort of like always with me, is always putting on my heart to do exactly the thing I wanted to do in the first place? <laughs> oh, it was the Lord who put that on my heart. Yeah, did you want to do that? Yeah, well, actually I did. Um, yeah. So what, um, what, what historic Christianity does for us and, and what Luther and the Reformers recovered in the Reformation is a sense of the external. Okay? Um, yes, it is true that Jesus dwells in me and in my heart. No doubt about that. Very, very important teaching. Um, but if that's all we have, then we're going to lose our theological bearings. What we need to recognize is that Jesus comes to us through his word and through his sacraments, which are outside of us. And there's our relationship. And in fact, that's how he, those are the very means by which he enters into us. You see, those things are in perfect continuity. If we cut ourselves off from the objective ways that Christ comes to us and relates to us, his word and sacraments, if we were to cut ourselves off from those, then the Jesus who is within us increasingly looks more like us. <laughs> that Jesus that is within us starts to be shaped. You know, God made us into his image. We've been returning the favor ever since. 
yeah, the Jesus of my heart inevitably looks just like me. You know, if I'm a Republican, the Jesus in my heart is like waving an American flag. If I'm a Democrat, the Jesus in my heart maybe has some sympathies toward communism. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I'm teasing here. I'm teasing. But, but isn't it interesting how Jesus ends up looking, you know, the Jesus of my heart ends up looking exactly like I think he should. Yeah, so what calls us out of this to the true Jesus are these external means, the preaching of the word and the sacraments. Now, what it's going to be at the root of the sacraments? The word. Because if you think of the essence of baptism, it's the word. Not the water that does these things, but the word. Um, what's the essence of the Lord's Supper? Not the bread and the wine that we eat, but the word and what that word manifests and gives, the true body and blood of Christ. So the word is the central element of all of this. And that word is, again, what gives to us faith and what keeps us connected with the true Christ and an objective and true and external and internal relationship with him, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's what we're after. That's what we're on about. And I think Wolf Mueller's kind of from his drawing on his own um, experiences within American evangelicalism in particular, um, which again, it's kind of just this idea of me and God, me and the cross. Well, where do you ever meet God? Where do you ever hear him speak? Um, where do you uh, where do you go to the cross? Um, and if it's just all sort of in my heart, in my imagination, in my spirit, um, that's something quite different than historic Christianity, which says, here he is for you at the baptismal font. Here he is for you in the pulpit. Here he is for you at the altar. You can actually come to him, receive him, receive his gifts and relate to him in this way in which he's promised to relate to us. Okay, well, I think I've sufficiently uh, beaten that horse. Can I ask a quick question? Yeah, please. Okay. Thank you. Um, let me tell you what I think, and then you tell me if I'm correct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you contrast Lutheran uh, doctrine or Lutheran um, uh, theological theories on this subject compared to Catholicism and to um, Protestantism, mm -hmm. we are kind of always at 100%. In other words, when I walked into church to receive God's gifts this morning, I was at 100% when I walked in. I'm at 100% when I walk out. I always have... 100% grace. Mm. Whereas in Catholicism and listening to the Catholic radio and the such, they talk about, it's like they're talking about CCs of grace. Yeah. So, you know, you were, you know, you went in for mass this morning right. and you got a, you know, 20 CCs. Right. And then you did something else. You get another, yes. <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's very, it's subtle. Yes. But it, Am I correct in thinking like that, or? Yeah, you are. That's one of okay, the that's one thanks. of the key differences in yeah. how um, Roman, and it's really a peculiarity of medieval Roman Catholicism and later, um, where you start to have this concept of infused grace. Okay, yeah. So, so if we were to really make this um, this distinction just as clear as possible. Um, even a, even maybe maybe oversimplifying just a tad, but still I think it's worth it to drive the point home. Okay, the biblical concept of grace, the concept of grace carried forward in, in most of the church fathers and then kind of recovered in Lutheranism after the abuses of the medieval period, is to view grace chiefly in the way of an attitude and disposition of God. Is God gracious toward us or not? See, that puts grace inside of God. Make sense? Um, what is his attitude toward me, even though I have so grievously offended him and violated his law and not shown love for him or love for my neighbor, but rather just lived selfishly and for myself? Um, that he would forgive me for the sake of Jesus is an attitude within him that we would define as grace. So far, so good. 
okay, in the medieval period where um, Aristotelian categories are rediscovered and there's this great desire, this is where we get the phrase scholastic theology and medieval scholasticism, there's this great desire to meld together philosophical, re newly rediscovered philosophical categories and to wed those with Christian thinking. What you end up with is grace, not a attitude or an expression of the heart of God, but you end up with a metaphysical substance. Okay. So then grace is infused into you as, as you art, you articulate it very well. You know, you, by the preaching of the word, that's a little bit of grace that's infused into you by, by cooperating. With God, there's more grace infused into you. By praying, there's grace infused into you. By going to the sacrament of the altar, there's grace infused into you. And so, yeah, the idea is get as much of this, as many cc's of this grace as you can throughout your life um, so that you can progress in good works. And of course, in the Roman Catholic system, it's credits and debits. You know, what has Jesus done on the cross? He's opened heaven for you. But now it's up to your, are you in the black so that you can walk through? heaven's gates that he's or are you in the red and how far in the red if you're too far in the red i'm sorry hell for you um if you are uh, nonetheless in a state of grace but you've got a lot of red into purgatory with you um, but you see it's largely up to you and then and then how does god how is god gracious to you if he's just left this up to you how is he at all gracious oh he comes and infuses you with grace so that you can overcome your sins and get back in the black this by the way is what roman catholics mean by of course you're saved by grace alone. What do they mean by grace? Something entirely different than we find in the Bible or the Church Fathers or the Lutheran Reformers. This, by the way, was the, the JDDJ, the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. I don't know when this came out. I've lost track already. Sometime in the 90s, was it, Vicar? Um, 99. This was a supposed document of agreement between um, kind of worldwide Lutherans nebulously and um, Roman Catholics. And uh, it's a disaster. Both sides see it as a disaster, frankly, if they're worth their salt, um, because all it was was a bunch of equivocation. Equivocation, of course, using words deceitfully, nebulously. So um, you take the term grace. Oh, yeah, we all believe that you're justified by grace. Of course, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge is we've completely defined grace antithetically to one another. So is there any actual agreement? There's no actual agreement at all. It's just superficial, feel-good stuff, you know. Yeah, so this is a big difference. Um, now, now, how would Lutherans articulate this uh, to kind of flip on the other side of the coin? Well, in fact, we are at 100 because that 100 is in the heart of God. God is gracious toward us in Christ Jesus. God doesn't change. Okay, well then why bother receiving the means of grace? Why bother going to church? Is the answer only because he tells us to? No, the answer is more, more rich than that. Now, while it is true that God doesn't change from one Sunday to the next, who does? We do. And more than we think. Our sins defile our conscience twist and distort our hearts, wage war against the new man that is within us, defile us, render us unclean. We're introduced to all kinds of lies of the devil over the course of a week, They're sometimes very subtle, sometimes very gradual, sometimes accumulating the way snow does. You know, if you look at snow, it's like, oh, just those tiny little flakes, what are they going to do? Look, one landed on my hand, it's already melted, it's nothing. But there's a slow, gradual accumulation, and suddenly you've got inches or feet. Um, that's, that's how these lies of the devil kind of work. They kind of slowly accumulate. You don't even notice they're accumulating. You're just listening to the radio station, the blasphemous DJs, and the, and the commercials that are pumping you full of all the stuff you don't have but you need. And the snow's kind of accumulating toward this worldly view, and that has all kinds of spiritual effects. So um, we're constantly under the assault of the devil. We're constantly in a state of flux. What we do is return to God and once again have him straighten us out and apply the medicine of his word and the medicine of the sacrament, forgiving our sins, yes, setting right our consciences, setting right our hearts and minds, showing us that narrow path to walk in the light so that we're not in the darkness of manifest impenitent sin, nor are we in the darkness on the other side of claiming that we're righteous and have no sins but right that middle path of the light, which is the truth, confessing our sins to Christ, 
being forgiven and cleansed by his blood. Okay, so then that's, that's the essence of true biblical, historic, Christian, Lutheran piety, recognizing that God in his heart is gracious toward us. He's not busy infusing us, um, but rather is, um, we are the ones who are changing. He is changing us by his word and sacraments. And changing us in what sense? Is there a growth and development as uh, to us as Christians? Yeah, of course there's a maturation that's taking place, or at least that's the goal of it all. What father doesn't want his son to mature? And so we find maturation um, talk all throughout the, the New Testament, growth in Christ, growth in wisdom and knowledge, growth in holiness, growth in um, emulating God, being conformed into the image of, son, uh, of the Son, which is progress, all of these kinds of things, just self-evident in the scriptures. Um, of course, any father wants that for their child. God wants it for us. Is our salvation dependent upon that? No. Our salvation isn't dependent upon that. In that sense, we're already saved. We're already his children. Our sins are already washed away. We're forever his children. Um, God has good stuff for us to do in this life. But all the power to do that, all the power to believe that we are justified, all the power to believe that we are his children and are called to act as such, all of that comes from his word and sacraments. So there's a great need and necessity for it, just not in the way that Rome pictures it. I see a hand here. Um, can we get a microphone up to uh, Vicar? Either way, yeah. So, of course, you're not a, a Roman Catholic apologist, but I'm curious, how do you think that they would respond if we were to say, okay, well, so if this, is, if this infused grace thing is true, well, why don't you just give us 100%, like all the CCs that we need? I mean, why don't you just zap <laughs> us full of it? If the Pope can set us free from purgatory, why doesn't well, he do it by grace well, instead of our needing our money? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so why don't you get a full dose, you know, kind of, kind of thing and just be perpetually filled? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I honestly don't know what the answer to that would be other than I think I, I, the argument, just charitably speaking, or if I were to try to make the argument, it would be something about the incapacity of the, the sort of tinder, the sinful nature within us to, to be able to fully receive and retain that. Um, and of course, then if we, if we make a free will decision in uh, contrary to that grace, that grace is removed. And so, um, just by virtue of our non-perfected state, we're in continual need. It would be a little bit like, I think that an, an apologist might make the argument that it would be a little bit like the constant need for air. Why doesn't God just fill your lungs entirely? Uh, it doesn't work that way. I think that that would probably be their argument. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering how to speak with, uh, say, a friend or acquaintance about who is Roman Catholic. And often they will agree, and I realize now, we all believe in grace, but should I just add on um, grace without works or good works? And I I want to bring them into the understanding, but I don't want to shock them and mm. make them think it's I don't need to do anything and all that stuff. Yeah. Is there a way to kind of like bridge the understanding gap? There. So you're you're talking with a Roman Catholic uh, friend, and um, you know how might you kind of share the some of the problems with Roman Catholicism and uh, uh, the gospel and its purity, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think it's so situational and circumstantial. I always hate to give any advice because that's kind of the art of vocation and um, giving a defense and apologia for the hope that is within you, not within me. <laughs> <laughs> um, per se. It's very personal. It's very relational. And you know what you can say and what you can't say in that relationship. And that varies wildly from one relationship to another. Um, but, you know, along the lines of um, how do you know your good works are enough to save you? How do you know, um, you know, how do you, you can kind of go that route from the weakness of the human, or you could go the other route from the sufficiency of Christ. If Christ died to take away the sins of the entire world. Um, why is it that you need to go to purgatory? Um, you know, and if they're astute, they're going to argue, well, these are, you know, these are temporal consequences kind of thing. Um, but say, don't the, don't the scriptures tell us that God does not treat us according to our sins? 
And isn't God's eternal justice satisfied on the cross? And if his eternal justice is satisfied on the cross, then how much more so could his temporal justice be satisfied? That's in his hands. So again, what you're trying to do here is just poke holes in this assertion that purgatory is somehow necessary. Because it's not. If it were necessary, the apostles themselves would have told us. You know, this, Here's the irony of the Catholic Church. Catholic from katahalas, according to the whole. Okay, well, if there's a teaching not found in the apostolic scriptures, in what sense is that teaching according to the, the whole testimony that's been delivered to the saints once and for all? It's not. It's a, it's a novum. It's a novelty. It's a new thing. And the Roman Catholic Church, while claiming to be the Church of Christ and claiming to have never changed for 2,000 years, is constantly filled with brand new teachings that come out of thin air. And that's one of the most difficult things for a Roman Catholic to answer is, hey, what are all the, if you're, if the Church is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow because we are Christ and Christ is ours, um, then what's with all these additions? <laughs> and in what sense, in what, in any way, shape, or form, how is that Catholic? Yeah. What is happening out there? There's weather in California? I'll believe it when I see it. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I bet my kids are all freaking out, you know. California kids, when it rains, it's like a cataclysmic event. The sky is literally falling. What is this? Are you going to be okay? Yeah. Okay, did I see another hand or question? Oh, first yeah. I wanted to yeah. respond um, to this issue. Often I think, okay... I'm out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm drowning. I'm not going to be able to make it by swimming. I have to be rescued. Mm. Somebody has to save me, because yeah. I'm Yeah, yeah it's die. not like Jesus is uh, in a motorboat just a few feet ahead of you, yeah. being, come on, yeah. come on, just yeah. a little further. That kind of thing. And, Quick, and go inject person, her with some grace. Yeah, yeah give her and if Christ back. really loves me, he's going to rescue me. He's not going to just throw a log out there and see... Can you make it? <laughs> yeah. And we would be like that. We, we'd give our lives to save our children or someone we love. You know, and that's yeah, what he right. did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's where the, the rubber hits the road on this. You can look at, you can look at Roman doctrine and, and what it does is it creates doubt in the, in the sinner. And they have actually gone so far as to say that that doubt is actually pious. Yeah. Okay. The, the, it's pious to doubt God's word. I mean, that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't like it. Um, and then the flip side is, though, that it diminishes the glory of Christ. That's the other side of the coin. Uh, it diminishes the glory of Christ um, because what you uh, what you say that man has to do, you're saying Christ didn't do. Right? So there's two sides of the equation. You pull over here, the something moves over there. You pull over here, and something moves over there. So um, the other way to uh, to kind of approach this, and and again. You know, I, I really, I really think it's somewhat dependent upon the personality, but our general stance toward lay people in other denominations ought to be one of gentleness and one of a servant demeanor. And the goal that we ought to have ought to be, how can I get you further to the kingdom of heaven, closer to the truth of God's word? How can I do you a favor, right? How can I move you in the right direction? And that means, so yeah, I mean, sometimes that might mean some harsh words. Um, or some disagreement or whatever, that's fine. But, but again, let's just not the sight, let's not lose sight of this. The fact isn't to win an argument or feel superior over someone. You know, the point is to try to help and aid that person in whatever ways you can. And frankly, sometimes you just realize, well, I can't help this person on their spiritual journey right now. I, where they're at, where God has them at, where their sins have them at, their attitudes and their false beliefs have them at. I, there's just nothing I can do. I'm going to have to wait for God. I'm going to have to maintain a relationship with this person to whatever extent I can and wait for God to enact something in their life, to afflict them perhaps in some way or bless them in some way so that now now I actually do have something that they'll receive. Does that make sense? So it's kind of a waiting game and and a a lot of bearing witness and sharing with people is a waiting game. Yeah. And then just being ready when that opportunity arises to say your peace. And the Holy Spirit will help with that. Course. It makes me think too when you're speaking about this. It boils down to the sin of Eve. How good is God to me? Mm-hmm. You know, how much? Yeah, is he withholding something? That kind of, yeah, yeah, interesting. 
Well, and again, we want to remember, too, that there's Christians scattered throughout all denominations of the church on earth. And so just because someone's Roman Catholic or evangelical or, you know, our assumption isn't, oh, well, these these idiots aren't Christian. Uh, no, these are brothers and sisters in Christ until proven otherwise. And uh, somewhere, somehow along the line, um, they've, they've got bought into a church that has um, false doctrine. And if that false doctrine is adhered to, Obviously, that's going to lead to death. Um, but there are many within the Roman Catholic Church that just say, well, bah humbug on all that, I believe in Jesus. You know, um, I'll go to purgatory if I have to, but I know Jesus has died for, as, as my Savior. You know, that's a brother or sister in Christ. Same with the American evangelical that believes all kinds of goofy ideas and has no place for the sacrament and everything else. It's like, wow, how on earth are you a Christian? But you are, um, and we'll see you in heaven because... We don't merit salvation by our doctrinal correctness either, you know. Lord have mercy. No one would pass that either. <laughs> so to try to be charitable to these things, um, you know, again, does that mean that does that mean that um, pastors and and theologians and seminary professors ought to always be charitable with one another? No, frankly, um, that's a different vocation and calling. Uh, when you're speaking um, from a position of authority that God has placed you in through his church, uh, you have a right and a duty um, to speak and to judge. And when you're dealing with others who are in positions of authority, that, that language and that vocational relationship changes. So uh, there's no sense in you know recoiling in horror or clutching our pearls when we hear theologians going after each other, as, as um, they all did in the medieval period, um, just ruthlessly so. Um, and then even today, where theologians are sharp-tongued with each other at that vocational level, I don't think we need to request, oh, you're not being charitable. Uh, yeah, if I was charitable with it, I mean, you know, it's like kind of like a judge or a police officer. A, a police officer arrests somebody for driving recklessly down the freeway, nearly clipping four or five cars, and police officers putting them in handcuffs. Oh, you're not being charitable. Look, friend, it is not my job to be charitable, okay? Same with a judge, you know, with a murderer, you know, saying it's not my job to be charitable to you. Um, and that there, there's a part of the pastoral office and a part of the teaching office in the church that it would be completely inappropriate for the pastor to be charitable given those circumstances and given the person to whom he's speaking. If that person holds an, an office or position of authority that he's using to mislead people, charity goes out the window. Um, there's, there's truth and lies, and that, that becomes a battle. So I, I say all that just like, you know, understand that there's there's different vocations and different relationships, and we in our personal lives want to be charitable all the time. Where people have a vocation or an office, sometimes that calls them to not be charitable, and we shouldn't look askance at that either. Okay. Um, well, maybe a little. Uh, oh, yes, one more. Okay. <laughs> I I've thought um, that these songs, including one about a garden. That really. Oh, yes. Uh, he walks me. with me and he talks with me. And yeah. And then he, I think most disturbing of all, he tells me, how does it go though? He tells I am me. his own. Oh, yeah. No, that's not disturbing. And the joy <laughs> we share as we tarry there, none other the has ever known. None other has ever known. The special secret knowledge that Jesus has imparted to me and none other. Flee. <laughs> Run. <laughs> Run. Jesus doesn't tell secrets, Satan does. And Jesus doesn't impart special, secret, hidden wisdom. That's Gnosticism. That's also an invention of Satan. Yeah, that hymn's got big problems. Big problems. Even though I'm sure it's piously intended, the theology there is horrendous. Plus, it's, you know, he walks with me and he talks with me while I'm, like, going through this garden or something. Like, do you have a Bible out? Um, is, is there a pastor chasing you around? How do you know it's Christ and not Satan masquerading as an angel of light? You know, and, and what a strange piety, too. It's not when I'm sitting in the pew that he's talking to me, you know, through the, through the mouth of the man he's called into his office to speak for him in his place. It's not at the altar, but it's in a place of my own choosing. What I'm thinking is, is this an attempt to fill the void mm -hmm. that where Christ really comes, uh, that we don't experience when, in communion? Yeah. With the denial of communion and baptism mm -hmm. and the neglect of the doctrine of communion and baptism within of the course. church, in my experience. Of course. 
And that tries to fill the void where he really does come to us. Uh, and then I think another thing that happens is we roll into postmodernism where Christ is seen only from my point of view instead of the objective truth that scripture gives us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And you just get lost in this mire of Jesus is whoever I think he is. Jesus would do, you know, my Jesus would never say that. I'm quoting from Jesus in the scriptures. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think your point's really well taken. And I think as we progress along, maybe we'll have time to do a little deeper dive here. But we have a non, non-sacramental churches like we do in American evangelicalism, American Protestantism, that kind of thing. Um, Roman Catholicism obviously is a sacramental kind of theology, even if they understand the sacraments in a very different way. Where you, where you've taken away the sacraments of Christ, but you still have the Church of Christ, that there's going to be a vacuum there, and that's going to get filled in with something. And on a corporate level, what that gets filled in with is um, the thumping, pounding drums and the lights and the fog, which are all designed to do what? Give you the experience of being close to God. Well, that's literally what communion is. I mean, you hear the word union. Um, to, to eat of the bread that is his body, to drink of the wine that is his blood, is to enter into most in, intimate communion with him. Um, there could be nothing else, but where that's removed or maybe just celebrated once a month in the corner if you feel like it, um, bread and, you know, oyster crackers and grape juice, as I experienced at one mega church in this area, um, then you're going to have something to fill that gap, something that's designed to try to bring you close, that feeling of being close to God. You know, it's also been very interesting to me in my observations of those churches where people, um, you know, really, really get expressive. You get the sort of the loud shouts of jubilation and the arms flaying and, you know, all the kind of like wild expressions of spirituality. It's not when the pastor's preaching and the Holy Spirit is actually operative. It's rather when the drums are thumping and the music's roaring, which, of course, if you've ever been to a football game, um, it's really hard to distinguish between the two. The rest of the crowd is all riled up and roaring, and you're joined with them, and you've got goosebumps, and you're on fire for the buffaloes. I mean, the Lord. I mean, you know, it's it's the same kind of phenomenon. Um, and this phenomenon, of course, is expressed in other forms of religion as well. So it's a really unnerving thing because you realize that, wait a minute, the, the Holy Spirit has promised to work in and through his word and create faith by hearing and hearing by that word of Christ. Why isn't all of this phenomenology happening when the preaching is happening? Um, but rather when, precisely when there's no preaching happening, there's just loud thumping drums and music. So... Um, this is a kind of, I mean, frankly, if we were just a little more objective and a little more pulled away from this, we would be able to say this without any scandal or possibility of offense. It's really an intrusion of paganism. Because if you look over in um, animistic and non-Christian religions, um, think maybe in Africa, um, so much of the religious ritual is drums thumping, rhythmic, repetitive um, stuff meant to draw one into a connection with the divine whether that's God or gods or whatever the case may be. Um, that's really at the root of, re- of religious experience across the board. It's just being manufactured and brought into evangelicalism so everybody thinks it's Christian because, you know, the guy wearing the, uh, you know, the, the plaid shirt is up there and um, he's telling me he's, this is all about Jesus. But whew, it's a pagan worship form. It's what it is. And it's replaced... Um, the sacraments. So yeah, it's a big deal and it's a shame and it's very difficult to get people to see that because when you're in that, you just assume that this is right and this is what everybody else is doing. It really takes a humility on the part of that individual to be willing to say, is this how Christians have worshipped for the past hundred years? For the past 200 years? For the past 2,000 years? Is this how Christians have worshipped around the globe, historically speaking? And of course the answer there is no. But what have Christians been doing for 2,000 years and across the globe? Gathering around the preaching of the Word and the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. That's, that's core. 
Okay, well, so just to simplify and to take us kind of back home um, where we where we left off, um, Christ wins forgiveness on the cross, delivers it in his word. That's the point that um, Luther has made, uh, he, uh, or excuse me, <clears throat> well, Luther too, he's about to make it. But Wolfmuller, that's the point Wolfmuller has made. Jesus wins forgiveness on the cross, delivers it in his word. And then a quotation from Martin Luther. That's where my mind was going. Bottom of 93, page 93. Martin Luther, in a glorious little essay titled Against the Heavenly Prophets, makes this distinction. Okay, the heavenly prophets is... um, This is the 16th century version of people who say, um, the Holy Spirit speaks directly into my heart. I don't need the Word of God as such. The Holy Spirit teaches me all I need to know in my heart indirectly. And in fact, he informs me what the Word of God actually means. Okay. So Luther, as is his way, um, he's got a clever name for just about everyone. And so against the heavenly prophets, he's calling them the heavenly prophets who have received this straight from heaven. They're too high and mighty to receive it from the lowly Word of God. Okay, so that gives you a little bit of the context here. Luther, we treat of the forgiveness of sins in two ways. First, how it is achieved and won. Second, how it is distributed and given to us. All right, same thing. Christ has achieved it on the cross, it is true, but he does not distribute, but he has not distributed or given it on the cross. He has won it in the supper or sacrament. Gosh. Let me try this again. I am so sorry. I think I've butchered this worse than I've butchered anything in quite a while. We treat of the forgiveness of sins in two ways. First, how it is achieved and won. Second, how it is distributed and given to us. Christ has achieved it on the cross, it is true, but he has not distributed it or given it on the cross. He has not won it in the supper or sacrament, There he has distributed and given it through the word, as also in the gospel where it is preached. He has won it once for all on the cross, but the distribution takes place continuously before and after from the beginning to the end of the world. How so? Well, because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, if, if you think of that event as happening roughly 30 AD, okay, that's all the sins of the past, all the sins of the present, all the sins of the future. He takes away the sins of the world. Now, the proclamation that he is coming, uh, that he is yet to come, of the Old Testament, that he has come, of the New Testament, um, these, these proclamations of the word are proclaiming the same forgiveness of sins won by Christ once and for all on the cross. So the, um, the Old Testament sacrificial systems show us that the Messiah who comes will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he's completed, there's no more need for the sacrificial system. Um, so that's, and the book of Hebrews ties all of that in for us. Okay, so that's the bottom line, is, is from, from Adam and Eve to the very last human beings on earth, the forgiveness has been won on the cross, but it's being distributed through the preaching of the word. That's Luther. All right, then Wolfmuller remarks, the death of Christ must be preached. Forgiveness must be preached. The gospel is not the fact of the cross or the event of the cross. It is the word of the cross. Now, this drawing from 1 Corinthians, by the way, this language. It is the word of the cross, the promise of the cross. Okay, quoting from Luther, now in the large catechism. Neither you nor I could ever know anything about Christ or believe on him and have him for our Lord unless it were offered to us and granted to our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Luther's opening point here, how are you going to know anything about Christ if you're ignorant of him? The word has to come and remove your ignorance in the first place. And then in the second place, the word has to convert and change your heart. We would use the language of convince. The word is what convinces you that this Jesus is true. And so when you get to the point where you say, well, I, in my will, I will and desire to believe in him. Why? 
because you've already heard who he is and what his benefits are, the Holy Spirit has already used the very word to convince you. And then the fruit of that convincing is you saying, I believe. So we can't mistake the, the experience we have of saying, I believe or I choose to cry, Christ or I choose to be baptized. That is the fruit, not the thing itself. The conversion itself takes place through his word as he changes your will, you know, like a finger flipping a light switch. And then you say, you know, you're the light switch and you go, okay, I'm off. And then the finger comes and flip and you say, I'm on. All right. But the I'm off and I'm on are just an expression of something that's already taken place, you see. So Christ comes, we're off, as it were, and he comes by his word and he flips us on. And then we say, I'm on. I believe. Okay, that's the fruit of what he's done. The conversion, the flipping of the switch is all him. The recognition that the switch has been flipped, that I've been converted, that I now believe, that's the fruit of what he's done. Okay, so that helps us understand and talk about um, conversion. And it's why you don't find Lutherans really saying, you know, I made a decision for Jesus. I chose Jesus. Um, because that's laden with all kinds of false ideas and false theology. If it were truly a free choice, then just out of the blue, you would be able to say, you know, I believe in this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, yeah, I think he died to forgive my sin. Um, you can't make a free choice because you're already being convinced by the substance of the gospel itself. Okay. So even to hear the gospel is to be to begin to be convinced by it. Already it's not free. <laughs> All right. So this whole business about the free will is really overdone. Really overdone. Um, God is convincing us and converting us through his word. And that's Luther's point here. Um, not only is he alleviating our ignorance, but he is changing our hearts, which are antithetical to God and his word. And he is changing our hearts by that very word, by the substance and content of it. All right, Luther continues. The work of redemption is done and accomplished. Christ has acquired and gained the treasure for us by his suffering, death, resurrection, and so on. But if the work remained concealed so that no one knew about it, then it would be useless and lost. So that this treasure might not stay buried, but be received and enjoyed, God has caused the word to go forth and be proclaimed. In the word, he has the Holy Spirit bring this treasure home and make it our own. Therefore, sanctifying is just bringing us to Christ so we receive this good which we could not get ourselves. All right, so in the foremost sense, how does the Holy Spirit make us holy? Through the word, creating faith within us and then indwelling our hearts so that we are holy. Um, sanctified in that broadest sense of the word. All right, well, one more from Luther. Christ on the cross and all his suffering and his death do not avail, even if, as you teach, they are, quote, acknowledged and meditated upon, end quote with the utmost, quote, passion, ardor, heartfulness, end quote. Now, you'll notice that this quotation comes from LW40. That's Luther's works, the American edition, volume 40. And you will see that that is uh, the same quotation, just a, just a page earlier than the previous quotation that we uh, mentioned from uh, Luther's uh, essay against the heavenly prophets. So, here you can see what it is that these tongue-in-cheek heavenly prophets are up to. They're saying that um, we don't need the word of God. We already know about the cross, uh, Christ on the cross, which is already ironic because, well, how did you know about that from the word? <laughs> okay. Um, but anyway, then they're saying, look, all we need to do is meditate, acknowledge and meditate with the utmost passion, ardor and and heartfeltness on the cross. We don't need the word. We don't need the sacraments. All we need is the cross and our pious imaginations. Sound familiar? Yeah, kind of. The heavenly prophets then are the heavenly prophets now. Um, people saying you don't need the word of the sacraments. 
Okay, so here now we know to whom Luther is speaking. We see how relevant it is and why Wolfmuller selected it for us in the context of American Christianity. It's really the same stuff we're up against today that he was up against 500 years ago. Luther continues, something else must always be there. What is it? The Word. The Word. The Word. Even if Christ were given for us and crucified a thousand times, it would all be in vain if the Word of God were absent and were not distributed and given to me with the bidding, this is for you, take what is yours. Um, how might we kind of make a, a tangential biblical argument? Well, even the demons know that Christ was crucified on a cross and rose from the dead, but it profits them nothing, because there is no word of God that says that this death and resurrection avails for you. And so that word of God that comes and says that to us um, makes that death and resurrection of Jesus um, meaningful, to say the least, for us. So it's the word that applies the blessings and benefits of Christ's life, death, resurrection to us, his active and passive obedience. So far, so good? Okay? Yeah, so we can't just have the cross. Uh, we have to have the word that declares the cross unto us. And that's really the point here. And largely what's been lost in American Christianity, so the centrality of the word and sacraments as delivering Christ's forgiveness to us. All right, dropping down, um, midway down page 95, uh, of course, we're going to reflect on this, that the forgiveness of sins is a promise. Now, because it's God who promises it, we can be absolutely certain it's true and absolutely certain he's going to keep it. That's the essence of faith. Faith doesn't trust itself. Faith trusts God who does not lie and has said. Now, that's important because you know, you can think about this. It might be a counterintuitive way for us to think as Lutherans, but what proof do you have that your sins are forgiven? Do you still suffer? Do you still die? Yeah? So what proof do you have that your sins are forgiven? Um, there is no, you can't really even point to your baptism because that isn't a proof in the sense that it's obvious and manifest by sight. So what do we have then? We have a promise. God says, look, your sins are forgiven. And it, it is at its essence a promise that is something that cannot be seen, but must be believed. Okay. So this gets us to the essence of the gospel and the essence of the sacraments, really the essence of everything God is doing to us in this age. Um, faith, not by sight. Remember, Adam and Eve from the very start did not believe his word. They believed what? Their eyes. Looks good for food. We're going to not believe God's word. We're going to believe our eyes. So now the entire epoch and age has been God teaching us, don't believe what your eyes see. Believe what my word says. Okay. Again, if we just went on the question of forgiveness on the basis of what we see, what proof do you have to demonstrate that you're forgiven? I still suffer consequences. I still suffer death. There's no proof. I only have God's word, that promise of the gospel. All right, so um, here, Wolf Mueller, it is a promise. And then here to wrap up for the day underneath, God's word, remember, can be divided into commands and promises. Now, earlier we called this law and gospel. A command is kept by doing it. A promise is kept by believing it. If I give you a command, stand up and do 10 jumping jacks, it would make no sense for you to say, Brian, I believe you. <laughs> I didn't give you a promise to believe, but a commandment to do. If I give you a promise, Jesus is coming back. It makes no sense for you to stand up and do 10 jumping jacks. I didn't give you a command to do, but a promise to believe. The gospel is a promise. There is nothing to do. No command, no work, no requirements. In fact, all commands and works are excluded. Everything is already accomplished. The victory of the cross is delivered in the preached gospel. This 
is the good news. It is a promise for you. All right, and here you can see, I mean, maybe just my kind of cliffhanger for next week. Um, here you can see that, in fact, what divides Christendom are different Gospels. Your American evangelical who believes in free will and making a decision is going to only be able to present the Gospel like this. Jesus Christ died for you and took away your sins if you believe. Okay. How could a Calvinist speak if a Calvinist were to express their theology accurately? Christ Jesus died for you to, in forgiveness of your sins if you are elect. There's always a conditional added in. Think of Roman Catholicism. Christ Jesus died for you to take away your sins if you do your best and let God do the rest through the sacramental system and end up in the black rather than the red. <laughs> rather lengthy <laughs> conditional. Okay, but what is the true biblical Christian Lutheran expression of the gospel? Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins from you. Period. It's a promise. There's no condition. There's nothing to do. Only believe that promise. You see? All right. The Lord be with you.